Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode six of the podcast, the topic is solving for surveillance capitalism. Our guest is Matthew Lowry, founder of myhub.ai. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a fantastic day here in Boston. How's Brussels? Very bright and sunny, white fluffy clouds in the sky. I honestly don't recognize it. Um, yeah, it's nice. So Brussels is is interesting, right? Uh, I've mm. lived there. You've lived there for a long time. It's a, it's a bit of a bubble, wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah, the, the, the thing is that um, I have a foot in each camp. You know, um, most of my work is rotates around the European institutions, and that's the Brussels bubble. But I'm married to a Belgian woman. I've got Belgian kids who went to Belgian schools and are going to Belgian universities, and they speak Belgian languages. So, um, so, so I've got, you know, the whole social circle, the surrounding school and, and all of that and the neighbors. So I don't live in the Brussels bubble, but I work in the Brussels bubble. So I'm sort of split between the two. Um, but yeah, the Brussels bubble is a real thing. It's politically significant in my view because it's so enclosed. It's so upper middle class. It's so white. Uh, it's so elite. It's so overeducated, not overeducated, but very educated. And it, it's not very representative, you know, of um, Europeans across Europe. After all, there are almost yeah. I think different it's an interesting discussion right now because you know we're having it around the world and and definitely here. You know, in the U.S. right now, the diversity discussion is is definitely you know taking off for for good reason. But mm. I thought about you uh, today when I was preparing for for this interview because Brussels is really peculiar. Uh, you know, in for that reason, probably not unlike what Washington D.C. is. Uh, you know, the, so. the the political heart of, of Washington D.C. Obviously, yeah, sure. And there's the the interesting thing about Brussels, though, because it's the heart of the EU political sphere, is that like I think there are 200 languages spoken here every day. Uh, it's actually a really nice place to live. You know, your audience should um, should not listen to uh, what your president says you know, that it's a hellhole. It's actually a really sweet little city. Got a lot going on. It's really nice to live here, and it's just. If you're part of the EU bubble, it's funny because on the one hand, you'll have friends from all over Europe and elsewhere because there's so many people here coming from uh, elsewhere just to be part of the EU bubble. On the other hand, they all they all look alike. <laughs> you know, they all went to the same school, studied the same things, and it, it's a very narrow tranche of society, but from 28 countries or 30 or 35 countries. Uh, that's quite interesting. Um, so I one enjoy thing it, I wanted to... What just sorry? One one thing I wanted to to cover was, you know, it's also very transient. How, how are you dealing with that? Because you've stayed through throughout many administrations. You know, oh, people stay for four years and and then they go. That must be hard over time. Um, most of yeah, there there is toing and froing, but you stay in touch with people anyway. So I've got people. I've I know Australians who I met in Brussels who've gone back to Australia now. They're in Melbourne or Canberra or whatever, and I you stay in touch with them like that. So you just get this global network uh, through people coming into Brussels. You meet them, then they go, but the network stays. The link is still there. They're still interested in the EU. For me, the Brussels bubble, which is the EU bubble, is not geographical. It's psychological. If you could explain to me why there are like six different presidents of the EU, there's the president of the council, there's the president of the commission, and all these different institutions, they all have presidents. 
it doesn't matter where you live. If you understand that, then you're part of the Brussels bubble. So we'll, we'll talk more about the EU because, I mean, it, it's a fascinating place uh, and it yeah. relates a little bit to the, to the topic we're, we're going to get onto. But why don't you um, give me a tiny little insight about your own journey because you're, you're a British-Australian person living in Brussels. I, I find that kind of interesting. What, what happened? <laughs> what happened, well, I mean, go back a long way. My parents came from Northern Ireland to Australia. I was born there, grew up, did science, and then became a science journalist. And like most Australians, you're sort of genetically programmed to throw a backpack over your shoulder and head out there, which is what I did. I came to Europe thinking I would spend a year backpacking around. But um, they had this wonderful phrase in French, chercher la femme. So I, I arrived in Brussels for two weeks doing a bit of subcontracting science journalistic work. And uh, two weeks became four months because the work, you know, kept coming. I was, I was good at it. And in month three, I met the woman who was to become my wife. So I ended up, that two weeks became nine years. Then we finally went back to Australia because I got fed up of waiting for the dot-com to arrive in Europe. So we went back to Europe, to Australia for the year 2000. And 11 months later, we were back here. We actually realized we were better off in Belgium. We actually preferred living here in Belgium than we did in Sydney, which is um, surprises a lot of people. And we could give you, I could give you a whole podcast just about that if you want, but it's not really about the future. It's just about how everybody's experience in a country is very personal and you know it really matters exactly where you are not just whether you're in sydney but how what are your how what is your life like in sydney uh, i was having a great time i was with the dot com um the olympics uh, it was fantastic but overall we actually lived better in belgium and i spent 9 years in belgium before going back and in the process uh, i became quite European without realizing it. Uh, I spent those nine years complaining about Belgium all the time. I was the very worst expat for that. Um, Belgium is full of expats like me complaining about the place. But then I went home and I realized, oh, actually, we lived quite well there. That was nice. So we, we came back. And so I've been back ever since. So I've been out of the last 28 years, I've spent 27 in Belgium. Wow. And I became Belgian. I'm actually a Belgian now. Right. So I've got three well, nationalities, so I can play passport poker. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, tell us a little about, about being a, a science journalist. I find that a very interesting and important profession. And, and it also relates to, to our topic today because science and journalism don't always go together. And I've actually looked into this issue and there aren't that many true uh, science journalists and certainly science journalist educations, you know, you know if you were to, to look for that out there. Tell, tell us about what that identity does to you and you know, how, how is it different to kind of practice science journalism versus any other kind of journalism? Well, I'm not a trained journalist, so I couldn't really, I mean, when I was saying I was a science journalist, I was freelancing. And uh, then I, I, got a, I got a job here in Brussels in a consultancy doing science writing, which is not quite the same thing. So I tasted science journalism. And then I, I've worked with media two or three times in my career, usually on the online thing. So, I've sort of, I became sort of an online uh, consultant in about 1995. I've actually been on the internet since 1988. So, I've been on online communities when back in Usenet before the web. Um, and um, I loved... I loved interviewing scientists about their work and then trying to figure out how to explain that to an interested public. Somebody, I'm not going to try to 
you know, uh, interest you. If you're not interested in in health, then I'm not going to try to tell you about how this cancer treatment works. But if you're in the slightest bit interested, I, I I love the idea of tailoring content so that it will hook you and then teach you something and you know uh, maybe show you a little bit how science works and 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 how this system of science works because most people don't have the first clue about how science is different from any other way of knowing things and what its limits are. Um, right now, I'm doing a lot of work with the Commission on Evidence-Informed Policymaking, which is the knowledge brokerage um, relationship between scientists and policymakers rather than, say, scientists and the general public, which is what science journalists do. And um, I used to think it was evidence-based policymaking. You know, policy should be based on evidence scientific evidence. But evidence-informed is a better nuance because science doesn't cover values. It doesn't cover morality. It doesn't cover everything. And people have this misconception about what science is. And so you can write an interesting story about a particular scientific uh, discovery. It could be you know, about quasars or it could be about cancer. Um, but in the process, I love sort of explaining how the scientists figure this out using this thing we call the scientific method. Um, I think it's I'm fascinating that myself. you... I, yeah, I think it's fascinating that you have this multifaceted view of science. I find this debate interesting because a lot of people will say, well, we're in a day and age where there's no respect for science. But mm. what you're pointing out is there should be some respect for science and then there should be a critical attitude to science and, and both have to go together because science doesn't answer all the questions. And for instance, you know, there is no saying that someone who is an expert at a deep topic in science necessarily has looked into all the ethical or even the societal aspects, although that could be the case. It's not necessarily the case just because they are scientists in a domain. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, but would you say would you say that people's knowledge and interest in science? I mean, if you look at the blogosphere or or even podcasting, which you know the medium we're on now, there there really are two trends out there. People are obviously very interested in entertainment in these media or in any media, but they're also interested in education. Now, it's a broad notion of education, but wouldn't I mean life isn't black and white. There, there is an enormous interest in learning. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, learning science may be slightly more ambitious. But I mean, there are a lot of science podcasts and technology podcasts that are getting a lot of yeah. listeners. They're, they're great too. I, mean, I, I eat them up. I, I love that stuff. Um, I mean, I study theoretical physics, right? So, the, of course, the, the science which I got interested in maybe five or ten years ago was psychology, which is about as far away from theoretical physics as you can get with while staying within the domain of science because uh, I, I got really into how um, you know, cognitive biases and how people, um, when they two, two people read the same text and they come away with completely different opinions – if you're the person who wrote that text, you want to understand why. You want to figure out, how can I write it so that doesn't happen? But you can't reach inside people's heads and change the worldview they have. And so I got really into learning about that. And that's, uh, there's a lot of great podcasts and blogs in that space. When you say that you know there's a lot of respect for science, or well, maybe there's not enough, the thing is that particularly in the country you're living in now, science became so politicized. I mean, it's now a political statement to wear a mask. That that's not it doesn't happen anywhere else. I, I think that's only an American thing. Um, that's because for the last twenty or thirty years, there's been this constant politicization of science, which is new in Western democracy. Science was always 
sort of not outside of politics, but you know, you don't ask a scientist to make a political decision. You sort of hope the politics, the political decision maker, will ask a scientist or some scientists before they take the decision. That's in evidence informed policy making. You sort of hope that happens, but when science itself becomes politicized, that whole thing breaks down and you get to the point where people get abused for being a, a liberal um, because they wore a, a, a mask to prevent infection. Uh, tell us about some of the work you're doing for, for the EU. Knowledge for Policy is one of the EU projects you, you, I think yeah. you've been working on. Yeah. How is the situation different over, over there in, in Europe? What are the ambitions? You said evidence-supported or evidence-inspired uh, or, or informed policy-making. Yeah, that, that reflects the idea that a policymaker has a whole bunch of issues he needs to look at or she needs to look at when taking a political decision. And the science should be one of those, but it's not the only one. Um, we used to call it evidence-based policymaking, which was, here's the science, and then the scientist says, this is my political recommendation because the science says this. But, you know, the, the policymaker will need to balance all sorts of things. And some of those things probably we wish they wouldn't need to, like the electoral chances of their party or their personal career. We wouldn't want them necessarily to take those things into account, but they do. But there are other things, like there are ethics and morals and, and um, principles and, uh, and so on, which are outside the scope of science entirely. And uh, I'm, I'm just, in a, you know, for the, for the European Commission there, I'm, I'm, I'm working as an information architect, trying to figure out how to build a platform which would be interesting for both scientists to work on amongst themselves so we can crowdsource via community features science scientific evidence for policymaking from scientists across Europe and then put it into this box into this knowledge for policy platform process it and make it available in a form that policymakers across Europe can understand. And so that's, um, is, there's knowledge management issues, there's uh, information architecture and content strategy issues, there's community management issues. It's quite a complicated project, but that's my day-to-day -day thing. I mean, just before this meeting, I was working on a training that I'm going to be giving in a couple of days, and that's my day job, so to speak. Um, one of them anyway. So, it's my so, main client for the last couple of years. It's great, So let's great move into, into the topic we were uh, supposed to discuss today, which mm -hmm. I think... It relates to a lot of the things we have teed up now because surveillance capitalism was a term in, I think, brought on in about 2014 by Shoshana Zuboff, right? The yep. Harvard uh, Emerita professor. And she's out with a book, I believe, just last year called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, mm -hmm. um, where she makes all kinds of statements about how our Digital reality is changing, and she, at some point, I think she says that we're not users or consumers anymore. We're basically just raw material for these big digital <laughs> machines. What do you understand by the term? What makes you so interested in this topic? And what is surveillance capitalism? Okay, okay. I'm not quite sure which which question to ask first. I think I'm interested in it because when you came to me about I'm doing a podcast about the future and I'm thinking, well, okay, what is the big problem that I'm I'm bothered by the most about the future? And, you know, people would often come up with things like climate change and other things. The biggest problem that that 
I think we face is actually the polarization of society because if we can't figure that out, we won't be able to solve any of our other problems because we won't be able to agree on what the problem is. We won't respect each other. We won't respect the results of elections. You know, we won't be able to solve any of our problems if we don't solve the polarization problem. But the polarization problem is actually the result of surveillance capitalism. So if you want to go right back to the source, you go back to surveillance capitalism and say, if we can't solve that, we're in deep trouble. So what is it? It's, I mean, you have to read the book. I can't give it justice, okay, in a, in a minute or two, but it's, it's so big we're living inside it, it's almost impossible to see the shape of the machine from inside. Uh, I think she's right. I think she's right that we are the raw material of these uh, big tech uh, engines, but you also have to look at the role of government in this and the role that the, the use government can make about it. You have to see surveillance capitalism as the latest version of capitalism. The other versions are still there. I mean, we've still got industrial capitalism, and the goal of industrial capitalism is to own the entire production chain. <laughs> but surveillance capitalism, it's actually really about controlling every day, every aspect of our everyday lives. You know, um, uh, a really great example of this, I think it's used in the book, or one of them anyway, is uh, do you remember Pokemon Go? Remember yes. That fun game. You know, yeah. everybody thought they were playing a game. Yeah. They weren't actually. I mean, they uh -huh. were, but there was something else going on. They were being herded like cattle towards the commercial opportunity owned by the biggest bidder in their region of the city who paid for those funny little demons or whatever they are to appear on people's mobile phones and draw people in like lemmings to a shop they didn't even know they wanted to visit. And, and that's a really good, metaphor for the whole thing every time you you know you get involved in a conversation on a some platform uh every every exclamation point every star or love heart or comment uh that's data about you and that's collected it's built into a huge profile and then it's sold it's traded on markets where people use that data to figure out what clothes you might like to buy what car you might like to drive, where you're likely to go to the restaurant. And they, they use this basically, to, you know, they make money out of it. That is, it's capitalism, obviously. Um, so how does that relate to polarization? Because that's what you're talking about is uh, consumer surveillance or, or, you know, it's, you know, gathering information of all levels about individual behavior that then can mm. be commercialized, you know, and sold and, and then commercialized. So that's one, one issue. But there's a bit that... more to it, if you, if you don't mind me just finishing a yeah. point. Um, yeah. It's not just about gathering that data and then using it to sell stuff to you, which is what, I, which is what we all thought at the beginning. You know, do, you remember, do you remember getting your first Gmail account at the time where everybody was worried about privacy issues? And we were actually all quite happy to trade some of our privacy for nicer things. But in fact, we traded a lot more. We traded our ability to think autonomously. We actually traded our agency. Because if you live and think in a world where so much of the content is actually your data being reflected back at you um, through the lens of somebody trying to manipulate you, it's somebody who tries to sell you some clothes is actually manipulating you in a way. Make, that You might think that they're just making you a nice offer, but... We're getting to the point where our information ecosystems are being tailored to make us not just buy things, but to think in a particular way. And that's the point of uh, the Zuboff's book, that we're getting to the point now where our agency has been diminished. We are no longer autonomous, uh, able to make our own decisions because all of the information 
that we live in is actually being manipulated to reflect our who we are and where we go and what we do and what we think and what we say and who our friends are. And that's actually hurting us like the Pokemon Go players towards a shop. So we, it's a certain way. It's like, of a, it's like a matrix, basically. It's a, yeah, it's it's a world that's not the world we were living in. It's a parallel reality that we none of us can escape. You know, unless you go off the internet and go off every uh, yeah, you know, every you have communication to totally go channel, off grid, which is which is not really not. It's it's really undemocratic and it's dehumanizing. It really Why is, is it undemocratic, by the way? Because wouldn't you wouldn't you also say that there's uh, there's some legitimacy to platforms that have amassed uh, attention around themselves. Why wouldn't, mm-hmm. well, maybe not democratic, but why wouldn't they be legitimate? Democratic, you know, maybe refer, I mean, it's a complicated construct, but legitimacy can be based on other things than things being democratic, wouldn't you say? I mean, there are a lot of institutions in the world that aren't democratic, but you wouldn't necessarily call them illegitimate. I think, the you know, unless you attack being... capitalism per se, which I'm not sure that your no. criticism extends to sort of any commercial no, 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 entity no. being negative, because, you know, that's a of whole other not. story. Of course right? not. Definitely no. not. Definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, the, as I said, the other forms of capitalism exist still today, and this is just an extra version of it, which sits on top of everything else um, and is eating everything else, too, by the way. But how do the you make the distinction is my is, point? How do you Sorry? make the distinction? How do you make the distinction between when does it become a surveillance capitalism versus just let's call it legitimate capitalism for a moment, just to use a, a, a distinctive term which says you know you you're out there you know doing commercial activity and in that process you're you know gathering information, doing a lot of different things. At what point does it become questionable surveillance, or is it? The total think number of, the of concentra- actors. The, the concentration of power here. I mean, I don't know if remember when Facebook first came out, but I mean, Mark Zuckerberg would say things like privacy is over, right? And the whole point that these platforms tend to say is that this is just a technological inevitability, like Thanos, I am inevitable. Uh, you have these platforms and the, this result, the surveillance capitalism world we live in, is is just an inevitable outcome. But in fact, they're spending billions lobbying to make sure that is we, we don't regulate it. If you go back to earlier forms of capitalism, there were early phases where some people cornered their market, and then they abused the hell out of it. And then it was regulated. Then it, they were regulated back, and uh, because when you have any player which has this massive weight on a market, it sort of tends to distort everything and they get a monopoly. And this is really not very healthy. In terms of why it's undemocratic, I mean, any world, if you live in a world where you don't even have control over your own thoughts, you can't be sure that what you're thinking is hasn't really been uh, manipulated by the information that has been projected to you based on all the data that has been harvested about you, that is dehumanizing and undemocratic by definition. Um, I'm not sure I really answered your question. About, I don't think I, I'm not really calling into, certainly not, I don't think anybody's calling into question the legitimacy of capitalism. It's just this particular version of it and the fact that we seem to have accepted this idea that it's inevitable when it's not. It could be regulated. We could insist on more transparency so we can see how we are being manipulated. We can see what's being used, what these algorithms are, but the platforms are doing a very good job preventing that from happening. So there is a push now towards regulating big tech and the EU oh. <clears throat> definitely has taken measures, right? Uh, there, there have been couple of directives, I guess, in the last few years that have made a stab at regulating big tech. Hmm. What would you say 
has been the effect so far in the EU mm-hmm. uh, by those regulations? And maybe you can mention some some examples that come to mind for you. But well, I guess the obvious one is GDPR. Actually, the which everybody is knows is the is this source of annoying cookie pop ups. I I don't know. Um, well, but, but it's a little more than that. Actually, you know, has it has has it had a good effect? I I, I honestly um, I I don't want to pass myself off as an expert on something I'm not. Uh, I really don't know how much impact that's had. It certainly doesn't seem to have had any impact at all on the influence that big tech has on our lives in terms of harvesting data. I think most people would would just associate GDPR with annoying screens they have to click uh, in order to get to the stuff they like. Um, but isn't that true I, I, with all I, I, regulation, though, Matthew, that you have to yeah. start somewhere? So this is at yeah, least a stake in the yeah. ground. It's sort of saying, you know, this may not be a perfect regulation, and we will listen to stakeholders. We might change it, but but they're, at least they put a stake in the ground saying, sure. we yeah. want yeah, to... Credit with credit to uh, what they the basically rights. did was they didn't really make a huge difference to the to the regulation that was before, which dated back a long time Um I can't even remember the name of it, but I used to write about it. Um, and uh, it, they didn't make a huge change, but they they made it like they put the penalties up in a massive way and they tweaked a couple of things. And it was a statement of intent that Europe is probably the only place in the world right now where you know the European Union is going to really try to tackle the, the big tech players for getting some sort of transparency and uh, getting people back in control of their own lives. Yeah, I, wanted to, I wanted to point that out, maybe not to speak for, uh, you know, for myself, but I mean, I used to be a policymaker, I guess, at a very junior level in Brussels. And the one thing mm-hmm. I would say is that there are a lot of very thoughtful people inside of that administration that really are, um, well, some of them are deep deeply technical others are you know they're they're very passionate and they they really look into the issues so mm. that's one critique you really can't level at the european commission that they don't look into the issues i mean there's oh, there's, it's full there, of policy there's hundreds wonks. of people yeah. looking into this and yes they may make mistakes in regulating big tech but arguably these are some of the smartest people i met that worked mm. in dg competition for instance yeah right yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yes, it is, and then more is required. But I think that the bottom line is this: um, regulation sounds great, but it's very difficult to get between a company and its profit source. You know, um, regulating the problems that uh, Zuboff is talking about in surveillance capitalism is an existential threat to these platforms, which is why they're spending so much time and money lobbying against regulation, uh, and. The things that they've been forced to do, you know, they put Mark Zuckerberg in Congress and he promised to do more. They hired some fact checkers and moderators. It's really just putting a little band-aid over this massive wound that they're hacking into, you know, hacking into the body of, of society. You know, this put another wound and then put a tiny little band-aid over. You can't regulate this and you can't moderate this problem out of existence because it's just too big. It doesn't scale. It's a game of whack-a-mole. And you can see how the amount of content that, for example, some um, some populist politicians publish and has not been taken down despite the fact that it clearly contravenes the terms and conditions on the site because, you know, you've got within Facebook, for example, there's one department which is responsible for both like moderating the quality of the content and also government relations. This is this is not good. You know, th- they're going to always have an eye on who's in the White House and what they're saying. And we don't want to piss them off too much. Um, so, you know, this is this is what happens when you have 
giant companies with this massive stranglehold on, and it's no longer data. It's not coal. It's it's it's, it's sorry. It's not um. It's not coal. It's not forests. It's it's data. They have this massive stranglehold on that, and they're going to hang on to it. And I think what we need to do is we need to find an alternative, um, an alternative business model for for the platforms that we're going to use uh, online to have our conversations to talk, because uh, one that doesn't optimize for outrage and polarized society in the way that the current ones do. So let's move to that. Actually, let's talk about the consequences of tech on on journalism, which is in your field, and and what you aim to do about it. Secondly. Um, what is it that tech and and ostensibly this phenomenon perhaps of surveillance capitalism what is the problem here with with journalism so you know we have online media there's even mm-hmm. a plethora of online media and, and there still is traditional media so the argument certainly can't be that there is no media what what there is perhaps less of is you know obviously local media has has struggled in in this new environment mm-hmm. and there's a concentration of media around the big advertising platforms. So there's a crisis of business models. Tell, tell me what you think are the most important and negative changes that have happened to media over the last years. And, and then, you know, let's go into some of your solutions to that. Okay. I, I think there are two interrelated questions uh, here. One is that we, talk, we, we mentioned earlier about polarization of, of society and then also the fact that uh, as journalism has been kicked in the teeth, um, uh, that means a necessary corrective to polarization just isn't there because uh, the, the business model of journalism has been, you know, uh, been badly eroded. The thing about polarization is this. The platforms that we use that we're using the 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 foundations of surveillance capitalism, they tend to polarize society. But I don't think anybody set out to do that. Nobody actually designed Facebook or whatever to polarize society. You when you build a website, you you design it in a particular way to encourage a certain behavior. And if you're into surveillance capitalism, what you want to do is you want lots of engagement. You want people to click on things, to share things, to comment, to like, because every click of the mouse, that's data that you can then collect about that person, and that's the fuel of your surveillance capitalism. So the business model is promote engagement. Design a, design a platform to create engagement. Unfortunately for everybody, and I don't think anybody had this in mind when they set out, um, the most the best way of creating engagement is to produce polarizing, outrageous content. So instead of like, we call it optimizing for engagement, it's become optimizing for enragement and which polarizes society simply because generating outrage is the best way of creating engagement. So you optimize for engagement, which means you reward outrage, which generates polarization. And this is sort of like an ABC. You end up with a polarized society where even basic science has been, you know, politicized. Um, and into that, into that world where everything has been, where society has been polarized and people have formed into tribes where, you know, if you're not in the right tribe, you don't protect yourself against a virus. Uh, that's a great breeding ground for disinformation. Uh, who can, you know, people who are interested in meddling in elections can use these tools to just as much as if you're using them to sell washing powder. And but isn't, as we but said there's before, a paradox the, here, Matthew, but between the fact that, I, think so. I mean, all politics aims obviously at optimizing solutions, but you know, in, in the process of politics, engagement and participation is always very important. So mm-hmm. it is kind of striking that the animal that was created, you know, arguably not by policymakers, but 
All of these online media have created an enormous amount of engagement. And yes, some of it is enragement. You know, it's a, it's an, a, kind of an antagonistic type of uh, rage, but it's also fueled social movements for all kinds of things. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it, it is a two-faced animal that we're dealing with. Uh, I, think it better, I think you were looking for double-edged, double-edged sword. You know, you can cut it in the right direction as well as the wrong direction, right? I mean, people talk about information being weaponized for political ends. But in fact, they're just, you know, it's just politicians using the same tools that Johnson and Johnson use and Volvo use to sell cars. You know, it's just the same set of tools. Um, and it's just massively effective. Um, unfortunately, um, it is very easy to game that system. And as I said, by producing outrage, outrage content, which generates lots of engagement, the end product is to polarize society. So what you think about anything depends on, you know, is driven by what your tribe is, you know, what, what tribe you belong to. That didn't used to be the case. You and I are probably old enough to remember a world where, you know, you could have a conversation with somebody about something like climate change and it didn't imperil your friendship. And, and now right. it sort of feels like it does. And that's what we're talking about here. That is a result. And one of the reasons why it's one of the things that's made it worse is, of course, that as we're, kind of, you know, we're talking about these two interconnected things, is that you know, journalism, independent journalism, has, has, has um, taken a real hiding recently. And uh, that's not just because of social media. That really started with the internet and it got worse with, with social media platforms. And there's a, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and, and really, I mean, independent journalism is uh, something which we're going we're gonna to look back on and saying, do you remember the 20th century, you know, when we had lots of independent journalism and now we, now we don't? In most of us, history of our society, we didn't have independent journalism. It was a blip. And it was just that blip where we had uh, – bundling together journalism with advertising which paid for it you know and uh, the internet unbundled everything and uh, there's not a lot of room left for journalism most of the money so let's talk on. about some of your solutions to that Matthew because I know <laughs> you are about to commercialize or you're definitely testing out right now this uh, startup concept called my hub mm. and for lack of better words I, I can you know, sort of define it as a knowledge startup, but it definitely aims for providing some avenue out of some of these problems that we've been talking about. Can you yeah. tell us wh what is it that you are trying to create here? Yeah, okay. It's it's a first attempt at trying to find part of the solution. I wouldn't ever say that it, th th these problems are just so huge. They cannot be one solution to them all. Um but one of the things I mentioned earlier is that we need to find an alternative business model for our online platforms. Regulating the existing ones I don't think is going to work. They're not going to let it happen. And even if they do, it's just going to be sticking you know, uh, band-aids on, on, on the basic underlying problem. So if we could find platforms where people can have these online conversations which they want to have and discover content, which are not optimized for engagement, then we have an alternative. And so myhub.ai is my first attempt at this, basically. Um, it's only brand new. Um, and instead of, is, instead of collecting data about people, what we're doing is we're using uh, people's interactions on this site to collect metadata about content. Now, it's almost impossible for me to describe this visually. I, I would wave my hands around, but you know, you're probably not going to use this video anyway. So people would have to go to my hub AI and check out the example hub on there. Um, 
But let me just briefly explain the business model, okay? It's an AI-assisted platform uh, for organizing content where the AI, you know, the natural language processing, a little tool, is actually trained by the visitors and the users of the platform. So it works like this. Um, people set up a hub on my hub AI, and the AI engine helps them categorize their content to organize their site, just like you might set up a blog on WordPress.com or, or something like that, but it's different. So it's a, it's a social and media platform. Um, and what kinds of content are you envisioning that they the put content in that there? The, the content that you would normally share anyway. I mean, you know, if you share content on Twitter or, or Facebook, whatever, you, you share that piece of content and then it disappears into the feed and even you can't find it anymore. So right. in this way, you can actually share it onto your hub and it's there permanently. It becomes evergreen. It's not just transient. So it's something where you have to really see a hub to understand how that works. But it, um, it's, it's both a personal productivity tool and it also is the hub of your online presence online. But your, what your I'm fascinated by is, uh, Matthew, you're hacking at a problem that has been endemic, I guess, in knowledge management for decades, which is mm. how to balance providing context, but still retaining the user's motivation for providing that context and then archiving that content in a meaningful way where you can recall the content without having to repeat all the steps all the time. And let, let me, I, I, tell I me actually a wrote a blog about post how, yesterday about how I, how I prepared for this interview, actually. Yeah, um, I was going to bring that up because I, I was reading some of those things that you, you wrote and you were actively using it and, and you, you brought in a couple of terms that... Um, that I wasn't aware that some of the you know the heroes of of of, uh, of my field uh, have been using. So you know Zettelkasten. Can you go through <laughs> that term? I mean, because there's a concept soup in every complicated topic, and you yeah, know when yeah, we get yeah. into knowledge management, Zettelkasten is one of them. Yeah, what is yeah. that? <laughs> it's. Um it's a, just a technique for managing knowledge. It was developed by some German guy. Uh, you just have to Google it to find out, or you can come to my hub and 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 look, find it there. Uh, it's just this wonderful technique. So that um, you know, let me start again. Have you heard of the phrase "building a second brain"? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's this you know a whole bunch of apps, and I would put my hub amongst them partially um, that people can use to become more productive, become more creative, um, to sort of be more effective in their lives by sort of outsourcing some of their thinking effort to, you know, to digital tools. And Zettelkasten is, is actually a, it's like a second brain, but the guy built it on paper using index cards. So now everybody's trying to figure out how to do that digitally because it's a way of um, organizing your ideas and then over time as you organize your ideas in your Zettelkasten, you build up this enormous second brain that you can then go back and mine because everybody's reading, right? How much do you remember of what you've read last year or the year before or the year before that? People well, read yeah, and then maybe so they bookmark it, you know, do they take notes? Probably not. Um, Zettelkasten is a technique for recording the key ideas that you take from what you read uh, and putting it into a system so that you can get the most value out of it later. So, so when I was preparing far, for as far as I understand it, and you'd correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong here, what I understand, Nicholas Luhmann, one of the most sort of prolific users of this, is a German sociologist, extremely prolific, wrote 40 books, uh, you know, throughout his career and some yeah, 400 he, he articles. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, what he seemed to have done, and I actually looked into some of his notes, it was basically a physical index card. And mm-hmm. on that index card, he wrote a core idea. And it also always has to be sort of an original core idea. And you have to define it all on one card. And then he just numbered it. And then as he was accumulating cards, he kind of added a little asterisk or, you know, an additional number. And then when he was connecting cards, you know, connect, connecting card 23 to card one, he just wrote 23 onto card one. Yeah, that's and right. And that seems he to was, be the extent he, these of These were the early versions the of hyperlinks. This is actually the first version of, uh, actually not the first version. There was a, so a guy who did this, um, he created what is now considered like the first version of the World Wide Web on paper. Um, and it's in Mons here in Belgium. Uh, you can visit it. I'll, I'll send you the link later. Um, but yeah, the, these were, these um, little notes on these cards he wrote were essentially what we would call hyperlinks today. So he would have these cards that he would write ideas onto, and then he would link them together via using other cards. This is, of course, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit um, uh, non-digital, and a lot of people won't do that, but it worked for him. He built up this incredible library of content, it, because you have to understand this, the process of writing a note down, you read an article and you actually write notes down you know, on, on your PC or on, a, on an index card, is a great way of embedding the knowledge in your brain. If you just read it, the knowledge sort of goes in one eye and out the back of your head. But if you actually stop and you read the article properly and you take notes and then you store it, two things happen. One, you're more likely to recall more of that article because writing is an active mental process and it embeds the knowledge in your mind. And secondly, you've got notes on that article that you can visit again. So when I was preparing for this chat today, I went back to my hub and I looked, I created a page, a Zettelkasten page with two tags, surveillance, which is short for surveillance capitalism, and polarization. And that pulled up uh, oh, a few dozen articles, which I have curated from reading on the web. And I've been creating them onto my hub for over a decade now. And, um, and I've been tagging them, tagging them surveillance or privacy or whatever. Uh, and, and up comes this library of, of, of resources. Included in those resources is, and this is the equivalent of an index card, it's a link to the actual full article, which I originally read, but then also my notes on that and my tags. And I think that's so the I crucial can part, right? mine into those tags and find other stuff. And I prepared myself for this interview in that way. Well, I think that's the crucial part that I like is the integration of content you read with your own observations on top of it. But, mm-hmm. but let's back, go back to this element of originality that is, I mean, was so much in, in Luman's mind because there was another... Uh, guy that you alerted me to and, and I wanted to just bring up briefly here. So Claude Shannon is the basically the father of information theory. Yeah, His yeah, concept yeah. of surprisal. So the, the, yeah, the, I find that's that great, you know, isn't it? fascinating concept, isn't it? The, the, the idea being that so much of the information contained in a message is just so much more powerful if there is an element of surprise in it. Tell me what, what that really means for you when you're using it in your system. Well, the thing is that what he said was that um, if there's nothing in the message which surprises you, then there's no information of in the message for you. 
I mean, it might but, be well, useful what, what for somebody that else. You should not then write a note so, on something that's so obvious oh, no, no, to no. you. I mean, the thing is, when I'm, when I'm curating content, what happens to me is I'm reading stuff online. I say, oh, that's a really interesting article. I want to do a number of things. I want to... That's something that I would recommend to my friends. If, if they were interested in this topic, I would recommend they read that. So the articles that you've read, you know, you found them through my hub because I put them there because it's my, I, I believe that the stuff you like, the stuff that you're interested in is reflects who you are and it's part of your online presence. It should be. And it should not be divorced from the stuff you think and the stuff you do. And your hub brings all those three things together, right? So. Um, I'm reading an article and that surprises me. That, that was interesting information. That is what prompts me to start curating the article. And I will take, um, I'll either copy or paste or write my own notes based on what I'm reading. And, um, that's a way of, you know, embedding the information in the, in the, um, in my skull, uh, uh, putting the notes that I can find later, but I'm also sharing them. So I can send you a link. Here's some stuff about surveillance, capitalism, and polarization. And you'll find everything I like, think, and do, which I've tagged surveillance and polarization. And if we're having a conversation about that, there might be some interesting reading in there. And some of it is my blog posts and, and examples of my work. So I'm, I'm fitting them in along, this, along with the stuff I recommend that, that other people have written. And so is that impossible the reasons why do? people might set up a hub. And is that Sorry? impossible to do, Matthew, on Instagram or any other kind of social uh, platform where you do actually have uh, elements of categorization? Or is it just that you don't like the fact that Instagram is owned by big tech? Oh, no, you can't do this on, you know, the, the whole point of um, social media platforms is, to, is the stream and, and finding content. I mean, have you ever tried to combine two tags and find all the content that somebody recommended about privacy and society, for example, combine tags together using faceted search. It's not going to happen. I mean, I actually created my first hub as a pilot back in 2013 on Tumblr because it was just the perfect platform for that. It was, there was lots of nice integration. I could, I could, uh, I could, um, curate something onto Digo and then I use if this and that to auto publish to Tumblr. I sort of cobbled this thing together. Now I've built that whole system in a, in a dedicated, dedicated platform. But the thing about Tumblr is that you couldn't combine tags. You know, here's what Matthew likes, thinks and does about X. And here's what Matthew likes, thinks and does about Y, but you can't see here's what Matthew likes, but not thinks and does about X and Y. You know what I mean? It's much more I powerful. I wanted to bring this back to another solution. book because so, so many of these things that we're talking about here, you know, are, are, have been part and are part of, of a, a, an intellectual discourse. So one book that you told me had a profound influence on you was The Filter Bubble, right? What the Internet oh, is yeah, Hiding yeah, From yeah, You yeah, by yeah. Uh, Eli Pariser. In 2011, he wrote this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, how, how, you know, should we avoid these bubbles like the pest or should we actually create our own bubbles is my question in this case because you are okay. i guess you're involved in somehow creating a platform as well right if you succeed it'll be a somewhat of a platform with mm. new bubbles it's just that they are bubbles that are somewhat more contextual yep. that combine you know a little bit more historicity there's a little bit of a track record i guess of your own thinking over time, but yeah, sure. you're still involved in some sort of filter making, right? You, I, I want to get onto this idea of the editorial filtering, and and you know we we in our pre-talk we talked a little bit about do, do people even want editors? But yeah. you are a little bit countercultural with your approach because you're saying 
there is a value in editing. The stream isn't everything. Tell, no, tell the me stream is not everything. This. Uh, I mean, this, the, my, my hub is about capturing things from the stream and putting it somewhere where you can get better value out of it for longer, um, both for yourself and for your audience. Now, about filter bubbles, um, I was primed to. I was primed for Eli's book even before I knew it existed, um, because we, what we were talking earlier about the Brussels bubble, about the EU bubble, which is in fact an echo chamber, and I had created a blogging platform to get new voices into that echo chamber. Um, and my very first blog post was about uh, because what happened when I launched that blogging platform was I became hate figure of the month for British Eurosceptics, the people who were to end up founding UKIP the United Kingdom Independence Party, which ended up taking Britain out of the EU. And um, I came across them, and they came across me uh, in 2007. And when I investigated their world, which was pre-filter bubble, I discovered the, the power of echo chambers. They lived in this, in this forum called eureferendum.org, where you know, where the person who shouted the most vitriolic hatred about the EU was got the most respect. And so they wound each other up. And this is a very, very well-known phenomenon. It's called groupthink. And I realized that online spaces could create echo chambers, and that would be bad. But I had no idea until Eli Pariz's um, book came out a few years later that then algorithms make that worse. I mean, actually reinforce the echo chamber by, um, on the one hand, these social platforms, the, the idea is that they give you access to more content, but then they only show you a certain version of it that fits your particular beliefs and preferences. Having said that, when it came out, I became a true believer in the idea, and I wrote blog posts about how the Brussels bubble and the filter bubble were you know, going to interact. But there's a lot of information, there's a lot of analyses showing that filter bubbles might not exist, or that although they can exist, social media platforms also are very good at bringing you new sources of content. So the jury is out on filter bubbles. I think that they do exist, but they don't exist for everybody, and that if you use social media platforms well, you might be able to avoid um, echo chambers entirely, but you have to you have to have agency. You have to know what you're doing and and deliberately seek out uh, sources of information which might not be comfortable to you. And that's really hard because Facebook wants you to engage, uh, and Google wants you to click. And you know even your search results in Google are are filtered by the by the filter bubble. So Matthew, so, what yeah, does it mean a, for the for the future of journalism and and the future of surveillance? capitalism and surveillance uh you know and and how do you advise my listeners to to track the stream the world in a way that isn't a stream i mean this is a paradoxical idea that you somehow can track something that is emerging by not focusing so much on my guess is it has to do with keeping some track record of content that provides a bit of a continuity and a and a narrative to things as opposed to just focusing on the latest but what what are the tools i mean your hub obviously and then the mm. content of of individuals that you trust but somehow it strikes me that the future of media in in your vision then is much more connected to trusting individuals than trusting brands or platforms because even brands are just reflections of platforms at the end of the day right because um facebook is one thing but you know it's basically the ownership structures that own all of these brands that then are you know have have their own news outlets but at the end of the day don't we 
shouldn't we trust more in the individuals to the extent that there are individuals that have the kind of liberty that they can create an autonomous um, position on any media that's not controlled by the platform itself? I mean, how do you see the future of this evolving? Is it is it possible to maintain these fairly independent platforms where individual journalists or anybody can can curate streams or or, or archives of content? that can protect against this filter bubble. What, what are your thoughts in the next decade on how this is going to evolve? Uh, I, I honestly, um, I'm not 100% sure of, 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 your question touched on a lot of different areas, right? And I'm trying, trying to figure out how to draw them together. Um, I don't think anybody knows how surveillance capitalism is, is, is going to work out and going to develop out. But um, if, if we don't do something about this, which is obviously a very, very easy thing to say, you know, we are, it's going to end very badly. I mean, capitalism tends to contain the seeds of its own destruction. You know, let's, let's fish the oceans until there are no fish. Let's mine all the coal until we can't breathe. And I don't know where this is going to end, but it will end badly unless we find other, you know, alternatives to this. And the alternatives are, um, you know, I, I hope that my hub is the first step towards finding an alternative uh, to these platforms because... I didn't. I never actually explained how my hub works in terms of a business model. As people use hubs, they actually train that AI engine, and then we monetize the AI engine, not the people. So, I mean, a lot of companies use AI engines to categorize content, and we can provide this AI engine as a service. Now, that's a very specific idea, but I think the more general idea is, can we conceive of a set of platforms where people can work online, where instead of the raw material being people's lives, their thoughts, their data, the the raw material is the way they interact with the platform allows us to train tools which we can then monetize separately. And that is the basic idea. And I don't know whether it's going to work in a number of different areas. I certainly hope so, because everybody else seems to have given up. I mean, when it comes to independent media, uh, there's a few media which have gone back to subscription model as opposed to advertising, and that will work for some media. But the internet tends to be a winners take all environment. You know, there's there's Amazon, and then there's everybody else. It's a winners take all environment. There's Google, and then there's Bing. You know, and and so that's going to subscription might work for the New York Times, but it won't work for your local paper. And so you can forget about having journalists holding local businesses and local politicians to account. So in terms of where this heads, if we don't find an alternative to platforms which optimize for engagement and create enragement, we're going to end up with, uh, we're going to be living in a world where we are less well-informed, we are more polarized, we are massively manipulated without our consent or even awareness, and we're living in more corrupt and less democratic societies, and we're unable to solve the problems that we face. And, you know, I don't want to live in that world. I want to find a solution. And we've got to start looking. We can't just give up and say, oh, well, it's like that, I guess. You know, I mean, we've, we've really got to look. We've got to experiment. And, and I, think I think that's that- sort of, Matthew, how I want to close this. I think this ambition level that you're charting out for us, the ambition to look and to experiment... Yeah, and I think that's uh, a mentality that we can adopt. And I wish you best of luck in in your endeavors to do that. And I shall 
redouble my efforts to do so. I think experimentation is, is fantastic. Thank you so much for... It's been a pleasure. Everything. Thanks so much for talking to me. You have just listened to episode six of the Futurized podcast with host Trunar Neunheim, futurist and author. The topic was solving for surveillance capitalism. Our guest was Matthew Lowry, founder of myhub.ai. My takeaway is that as polarized and broken as the online business model for content is, there is still a chance that human beings can become more than raw material for the big tech behemoths that currently rule the space. I'm encouraged by taking up the German note organizing system Zettelkasten, which helps you become your own conversation partner. And I was reminded of the concept of surprisal, the fact that the more surprised you are about the message, the more information it seems to contain. Perhaps there still is a way to create a narrative, a path that values storytelling and editorial quality, at least your own. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.